wiser and curiouser. Your pardon. Oh, quite all right. But you did give me quite a turn. You see, I was following. Rather good, what? Doorknob turn? Please, sir. <laughs> well, one good turn deserves another. Welcome, 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 welcome to the podcast that puts the plus in Disney Plus. It's Talking the Mickey. My name's Ian. My name's Ellie. I'm Georgia. And I'm Ethan. And uh, we are gathered here today to talk about Alice in Wonderland. But before we do that, I think... uh, I think it's important to give a big thank you out to anybody who's ever downloaded the podcast because once again I'm sitting here today going, We had an incredible week again. I was I was shocked. I was very impressed. There's like every time I go, I go, wow, this is a great number. If only we can hold this number next week. And then like the opposite happens. So today as we record this, we have had our best single day ever. If today by <laughs> itself was a week unto itself, it would be our third best week by itself. So wow. without discounting the next six days that are going to come after it. So really, um, really quite happy about that. And in other happy news, uh, we were actually featured on a, um, on a website called Feedspot, I believe it is. And Feedspot ranked the top Disney podcasts. And I don't know what happened, but somehow we're number 13. That, that shook me. Because it, it, I... I, like, I got an email saying, congratulations, we've selected you as one of our top 60. And I was going, oh, that's cool. And then I kept scrolling. And it actually went to, like, 70 or something like that. But I scrolled mm-hmm. up and up and up. And I'm going, those guys lied to me. Like, it's not updated. This isn't updated at all. This is just, like, a scam. And then I went, no, we're number 13. And we were the number one Disney, like, film review podcast on that list. The other ones were all, like, parks-related that were above us. So I will definitely take that. So thank a big thank you to Feedspot for uh, looking at what we have to offer and deeming it to have to have value. I feel like not to get too much into a crossover, but I feel like uh, tr- um, Jeff on Community when Abed says, "I see your value now." I'm like, "Wow, thank you very much." <laughs> it was it was really shocking for me because I looked through that list and like I knew most of the sort of the top ones like Diz Unplugged and uh, some of the other ones at the top like uh, WDW Radio, Jim Hill's one. And then I looked through, and we were above Diz After Dark and, uh, how was it, uh, Resort Loop. And those are two podcasts that I've listened to for at least, like, four or five years, especially Diz After Dark, who helped me with my Disney Paris trip way back, like, two years ago in 2018. So that was crazy. Way back two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> this year felt call. like a century. Back in what we called the normal times, the <laughs> old days where we could, like talk in the same room um but no i saw an old video from disney from like last year and i was terrified by how close everyone was (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing how quickly like these things turn off in your brain and you go Mm. no you can't have that anymore and things that would you know uh, would have seemed totally you wouldn't have batted an eye and now you're like uh. Mm. so you know there's a whole me a whole fun process and reacclimatizing ourselves (laughs) however we do this podcast to take our mind off of that stuff and um, so, I mean, we, we ended up last week as well, guys, not to throw another ranking out there, but we charted them a top 25 film review podcasts full stop in the UK on Apple Podcasts Ooh. last week, which, I mean, 
if I can say selfishly, I was sitting there going, one day I'd really like to be a top 100 podcast. That'd be great. <laughs> and then it came in and we got above that a couple times. Like, oh, okay. And then we just went to 24 and I was like, what happened? Not what I was expecting, but very thankful to anybody out there. So thank you so much. And if you want to make us even happier than we already are right now, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, it would take you all of two minutes to go on there. Actually, like take it five seconds to just click on it and give it five stars or two minutes to write a little pithy thing about how entertaining the guy from New Zealand is. And that so you thought I was going to like go the other way. No, I was being authentic here. The guy from New I Zealand. Ex- I was expecting a, I was expecting a fun little jab. No, no, no. No fun little jabs. Because of Taika Waititi, I see the value of your people now. Oh, so. <laughs> It, it was it was in uh, it wasn't Lord of the Rings with Peter no, Jackson. No, Peter Jackson taught me that your place is where we go to film like stuff that we want to film. But <laughs> at no point to be go New, New Zealanders themselves are talented. Taika Waititi's done that, so fair play to him. Uh, but no, if you were to go ahead, there's the fun little jab. If you were to go ahead and tell us uh, that you know you, you appreciated what we did, that would mean the world to us. And it would help us a lot. Continue with our rankings on Apple Podcasts. So thank you very much. Um, I think that's about it. I think we're ready to start talking about Alice in Wonderland. So, um, Georgia, you picked Alice in Wonderland. So as is our tradition, uh, you have the right to tell us why. Why did you choose Alice in Wonderland? So I chose Alice in Wonderland because most people that know me well know that I love Alice in Wonderland. Not necessarily just the Disney film. Um, but everything about it. So the original book, all of the illustrations in the originals, pretty much anything that's come from Alice in Wonderland that's good, I really, really like. It resonates well. Um, Saying that, the uh, adaptions that they made a few years ago, the live ones, live action ones, don't sit quite so well with me. They're all right. They're just not great. I didn't particularly like Through the Looking Glass or the original one, but I've watched them and didn't hate them um but they don't hold up to the this one the 1951 original um and i adore the story i adore the characters i think that the characters are so well represented in this film and in the parks as well um alison hatter at least in paris and california um have a big presence in the park there some of the like five or six groups of characters that are pretty much always out at some point. Um, and they are brilliant there. I had the most wonderful interaction in Paris two years ago with the, with Alice and the Mad Hatter um, that I don't think I'll ever forget. It was completely magical. And I felt like completely like, I don't know, like drunk and happy and dizzy and everything at the same time, because it was just so wonderful um, and you feel really silly afterwards because you go, they're just actors. But they they weren't in that moment. It was really, really nice. And I think they also appreciated, well, I know at least the Mad Hatter did because he told me that I'd made his day and it was really nice. So I had a great time then. Um, but yeah, Alice means a lot. This film kind of started my obsession with it. And yeah, I like Alice. Okay. And my five-minute monologue. Thanks for joining us this week. On, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Let's go ahead uh, and 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 deep dive, uh, begin our deep dive. But I I would on the surface level before we get too deep, I'd argue I think the characters themselves, the the, the creation of the characters, are among the more iconic ones. 
a certain handful anyway are. And um, yeah, and the question might be, you know, the, why they're so iconic, and what is it that they created that that sort of um, emotional attachment between audiences and, and, and those characters, and does that exist independent of the film itself? And that's kind of where we're going to take a look at it today. So, uh, Alice in Wonderland is the thirteenth lucky or unlucky number thirteen. Of the Disney animated classics. Uh, it comes between, or betwixt, if you will, uh, Cinderella and Peter Pan. So you want to talk about films with legacy. I mean, they've hit a pretty good stride here. This is These, these are three that have definitely long-term um, emotional value, I think, in that Disney catalog. Um, and it was directed by <laughs> Clyde Geronimi, Wilford Jackson, Hamilton Lusk, as well as like three or four other guys as well. Like basically they were all given a character and they got to direct that sequence or they got like one of those scenes and they had to direct that scene. And then you could say that's got positives and you could definitely argue it's got negatives to it. I thought it gave it a little bit of a feel like Three Caballeros in the like kind of like, what's it called, a sequence film? Where you've got like the different... A package film. A package film, yeah. Um, where it's kind of lots of bits strung together. Um, obviously, the storyline in Alice in Wonderland is much more cohesive than in Three Caballeros, but it does still have that slightly kind of disjointed feel as it moves between the different characters. And it's interesting because these big three who I mentioned, Geronimi, Jackson, and Lusk, they all worked on Cinderella, this, Peter Pan, and uh, Lady and the Tramp. So it's kind of interesting. They were, and then Geronimi would uh, go all the way to 101 Dalmatians, at which point then he would transfer that over to Wolfgang Reitherman, and we kind of know what happens with Wolfgang once he gets the keys to the car. Uh, not so much the quality, although we could talk about that, but just the idea that Wolfgang's there for a while. Um, and so Walt had read Lewis Carroll's books as a schoolboy and is said to have liked them. And then in his time before the Disney Corporation, this is where I'm expecting Ethan and Georgia probably to know a bit more than me on this while I was doing my research. Um, Walt was doing was involved in a company out of Kansas City called, um, well, Laughograms of some sort. Oh, yes. I know Laughogram. Okay. And, sad. And he was creating a run of shorts called the Newman Laughograms. And the last one was a redoing of Alice in Wonderland. And it was going to be a live-action girl, and they shot it, a live-action girl who was going to interact with an animated world. But the public never got to see it because they went bankrupt in 1923, July of 1923. And so since then, this is, I mean, you might think maybe that would kind of sort of haunt you and go, I'm not doing that again because it was the, the last thing I did before I failed. But it never really kind of left Walt's head, and he wasn't the only one because at this point, Alice in Wonderland... Um, it's just a property that many people want to do something with. And so uh, Walt again tried to make it in the 30s, revived that interest in the 40s, but he kind of went off it in the mid-30s because Paramount released a live-action Alice in Wonderland in 1933, and for whatever reason, he kind of went, I'm not, I'm not interested in doing that. But then Snow White was such a commercial success that he used the money from the profits he made on that to buy the rights to do Alice in Wonderland again. Which is interesting, because today, you you wouldn't be able to do that. I mean, you know, uh, whoever it was who made Jurassic Park, I don't know if it was Paramount, probably wasn't Paramount. But whoever it was who made Jurassic Park, it's not like three years later, you know, let's say Universal made it. It's not like three years later, someone can go, 
you know, oh, Sony, you want to make Jurassic Park? All right, you go ahead and do your Jurassic Park. <laughs> but I guess back then, it, you know, films weren't what they are today. So, okay, you did your spin, now we'll do our spin. Um, and the original pitch was all wrong when whoever it was who was given the uh, the legs to run with it. And the story and the drawings especially were too gro- dark, grotesque it was described as, and too similar to the way they were in the books and didn't make for an appealing cartoon film. So he, he, he shelved it. And then he hired the British author Aldous Huxley to rewrite the script. Have any of you, are you familiar with the name Aldous Huxley? Not in the oh. slightest. Aldous, I don't know why. Aldous Huxley wrote a book that I had to study for like the Canadian equivalent of A-level called Brave New World. And it was all about the idea that you're put into one of these four. Anyway, it's very highbrow, proper, proper British literature and an absolute literary classic. And the idea that he was brought on to uh, work on a retelling of uh, Alice is insane. Uh, Huxley's story devised around an idea in which Lewis Carroll... And Alice Little, the inspiration for Alice, were misunderstood and persecuted following the book's publication. And in Huxley's story, um, the stage actress Ellen Terry would be sympathetic to both Carol and Little. And um, Queen Victoria would come in and save the day and validate Carol due to her appreciation for the book. And basically, it all actually kind of ran a little bit too true to real life. And Walt went, I appreciate what you've done, but I really can't do that as a story. It's just too... Two on the nose. And so around 1946, he it came to him. He went, the only way I can do Alice in Wonderland justice is if I do it 100% animated. And um, that way, we also get the two Alice books kind of put in one. It largely follows the first story, but there are elements from Looking Glass in here. Georgia, I don't yeah, know. As, if, not as, many. Not many, but there are yeah. some. Like the Bread and Butterflies, I know, for example, are one of the things yeah. from the Looking Glass. It's more it's more little side bits that yeah. are the story mostly follows the original, yeah. So, uh, this was being produced the same time as Cinderella, and the crews for the two films raced against each other to see who would finish first. Obviously, Cinderella finished the film first, so they got first crack at it in 1950, whereas um, Wonderland was 1951. And I'm wondering if the reason why, if they're racing against each other, is this the reason why every Disney film of this era is like 74 minutes long? <laughs> get it finished get it done it's not exactly the mark of a good film that's been super rushed through production is it i guess just i don't know if it's rushed to production but the idea of it yeah your award is you know we, we want to finish first well maybe it's about getting it right and yeah. something interesting here uh alice in wonderland was a financial disappointment for the walt disney company uh it had a budget of three million and only made 2.4 million so if you factor in marketing which wasn't as much as it is today they still lost about a million dollars Oh, wow. And so Walt was left going, what do I do with this? And so this was the first Disney film to ever appear on television. In the 1950s, he let it go on uh, NBC for a program he was calling Disneyland. And this was the first two episodes, was Alice Part 1 and Alice Part 2. I believe it was in the run-up to opening Disneyland, wasn't it? In uh, California. It could be. I think it was done, the TV series was done as a bit of an advert for the park opening, I think. That would make sense. Uh, it proved to be very successful um, as far as re-releasing it later on, especially in the psychedelic era. Uh, it was a big hit. I'm, I kid you not. It was a big hit in universities in the 70s where you can 
wonder for yourself, why would university students in the 70s want to see Alice in Wonderland? That does not surprise me at all. <laughs> and so uh, it was constantly, they were renting out the, the film reels. And eventually they just went, let's just go national with it. Now, I'm assuming the crowd were, were ingesting different things, maybe like popcorn. In, when they released it to, to national theaters, as opposed to what's happening on the university campuses. But it proved if me, I was a uni student ingesting popcorn watching this film, <laughs> I'd be terrified. That's honestly, good, good question mm-hmm. there. Uh, but you think about the films that have that legacy. I mean, it's this, and it's like Wizard of Oz, isn't it? Yeah. Because apparently, yeah. if you put on Wizard of Oz and put on Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Uh, apparently it's, you know, that's the sort of culture for then, you know, taking popcorn and then kind of, you know, seeing with, with these hallucinogenics in your body kind of how that how that reacts. But nationally, it got re-released in 1974, made three and a half mil. In 1979, it was re-released in the UK in 81. It was very successful from there on in. And maybe that's got something to do with what we talked about, I think it was a couple of episodes ago, which was why do you keep releasing these films? Well, because this thing tanked the first time. But outside of printing more film reels, what does it really cost you to put it back out? Yeah. Mm. And you just keep showing up the money every five years or you change the markets and you just take the money in and then you do with it what you will the next time around. And it was one of the first uh, pieces of media really ever released to the VHS home market. In 1981, it was released on like VHS, beta, like six different formats because you don't know which one's going to take off, but they flooded the market with it. And so, to a degree, you have Georgia. A, I was going to say, do you have a like a rough estimate of how much the VHS is made? I I saw it. It was something like three million again. Ooh, yeah. So not bad. Um, so Georgia, I wonder if this is elements of. I, I know you're a big fan of it, but I you, you kind of wonder because it was played on TV, and because it was one of the first things you could own on video cassette. Does this therefore raise its sort of cultural cachet because everyone now remembers growing up with it? Possibly. Um, I think the fact that it's already a very classic English fairy tale, as it were, um, gives it a massive social standing in the UK um, because we don't have many. We have pretty much Alice and Peter Pan Um and that's about it. We didn't really have much other of those kind of caliber of stories that we have as legacy. So I think as as far as that goes, it that's definitely part of it. But no, I think people growing up with it will help. Absolutely it will. But I think a lot of Disney films did that as well. It wasn't it was just Alice was the first to do it. I'm not sure how much of a more of an impact that would have had that it was the first one. So there's a film in the States called It's a Wonderful Life. And it's a Christmas film. And uh, generally, when it first came out, it was panned. Like, nobody liked it. It didn't make any money. It was a failure. And then for some reason, they let the copyright on the film expire. And so as a result, all these television stations in the States realized, I've got free programming. So they all grabbed the film. And so what did they do? They all played it. And a generation of kids grew up every year watching It's a Wonderful Life on television. And so now it's regarded as like an American classic. But it's not an American classic because it was great, at least not initially. It was an American classic because it was free. And therefore your exposure <laughs> makes you think you have all this childlike – and then you've got to show your kids that film. And I'm just wondering if Alice maybe is a touch of this. or, is, or it might have, yeah. Or you could argue quite easily, Georgia, it's just ahead of its time. And yeah. the public wasn't ready for it yet. I've got a couple of reviews. I'll skip a, a, a few. But uh, the New York Times, Bosley Crowther wrote, if you're not too particular about the images of Carol and Tenniel, 
If you're a high on Disney whimsy and if you'll take a somewhat slow and even pace, you should find this picture entertaining, especially for the kids who are not so demanding of fidelity as the moms and dads. Some of the episodes are dandy, such as the Mad Tea Party and the Caucus Race. The music is tuneful and sugary, and the color is excellent. Um, yet, uh, Lewis Carroll fans themselves found the, the picture not enjoyable, and literary critics as well. And Disney was accused of Americanizing a great work of English literature. <laughs> Let's make it a little bit more syrupy. And ready for that American audience. It is definitely sweetened. Yes. Absolutely it's sweetened. Um, the You can understand why the original script for the Disney film would have been a lot darker. Um, because the original is. It can definitely be taken down a very, very dark road. If you, depending on how you interpret the original text. Um, saying that, however, I really like this version. Because I've seen, I've seen darker versions as well and absolutely loved them. Um, but this version just has... It has the childlike whimsy of Alice that is sometimes missed if you take it too seriously. And I think that's really important, especially for a film that is aimed at children, but holds its own amongst stories anywhere. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, Walt himself felt that the critical reception to Alice in Wonderland wasn't surprising. Uh, He intended it for family audiences, not literary critics. But after all the years of thought and effort... He felt it was a disappointment after its initial release. He felt that it lacked heart. And he blamed the character of Alice, saying she was not sympathetic enough. He would later state that the Alice, the film, was one of his biggest regrets. That's very, very interesting. It is. Yeah, I would, I mean, I'm disagreeing with Walt there. I think Alice Mm -hmm. is full of heart and whimsy. I think she's amazing in this. Um... She has so many different... She's a bit a bit like Tinkerbell throughout some of this. She's very up and down and different emotions Literally. all over the place. Literally all over the place and up and down, yeah. But okay. she... Yeah, yeah, no, as a seven-year-old child, which I believe is about how old she's supposed to be, that is exactly what they're like. Um, and then finally, Leonard Malton, who is an American film critic, uh, talked to one of the animators. And the animator, his name was Ward Kimball, And he felt the film failed because it suffered from too many cooks. And by that, he meant the directors. Here was a case of five directors, each trying to top the other guy and make his sequence the biggest and craziest in the show. This, as a result, had a self-canceling effect on the final product. Now, since the 70s, the film's been reevaluated and critics generally love it. I think on Rotten Tomatoes, it's like 80-something percent now or something. Like it's, It's highly regarded now. But at the time quite interesting and we talked before about how many individual pieces can sometimes come across and develop one intelligent thought process this animator is suggesting the opposite happened i think without any um offense we'd go this is going to be a polarizing film because it's not your traditional narrative absolutely yeah so now's a good time as any to jump in so um we start off with an overture, and I don't know if you necessarily think it's necessarily a, like like an an auditory overture. It's got like a theme song. You know, like, yeah. Alice in Wonderland. I, I love it. That like I nineteen. It. I like that like nineteen fifties. Really oh really? Overture, yeah. I I hate like nineteen fifties Disney with like all those sort of because they all sounded that sort of choral. 
highly female soprano-y kind of thing <laughs> i have put in my notes do i just like it because i'm a choral singer yeah probably um but then georgia and ethan like it as well so but the thing that i thought i was... have a, i have a nostalgia for like old school disney opening singing yeah like I've, I've i've always liked the, the big openings with the with the choral singing especially with i want with with peter pan i i that is like yeah, pure nostalgia. I think it just gives you that kind of Disney magic warmth and glow. And I'm kind of, mm. I'm sat on the sofa starting to watch this film, starting to feel all fuzzy and Disney-fied. Yeah. And it just got me in the mood for a Disney film. I think there's two eras of Disney openings, uh, at least old Disney openings. And the first one is the choral singing. Right, and you sing the title of the film, and you go through some stuff. And that generally, you have some matte paintings that you zoom in on, and then you're into the film. The second one is the book opens, and we've talked about this a little <laughs> bit in Sword of a Stone or Robin Hood or Jungle Book. Or Beauty and the Beast. And you narrate. That's a bit of a throwback, yeah. But like for eras, they go, this is how we open films. This is what we do. But what I liked about the overture, if I can still call it that, isn't so much that it's an audible overture because it's not. It's just a theme song. But it's a visual overture because they pretty much, if you want to consider it this way, they kind of spoil the film for you in the first. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you hoping to be surprised by any interesting characters? Probably not now. I mean, you know, I mean, it assumes that you can take it in. And maybe something you notice more on, on, on the rewatching. But they do kind of spoil every memorable character and plot point. I think all the, they show all the characters, but the characters aren't, they're not moving. They're not animate. You can't hear no, them. You shots. don't know what they're doing. They are just still shots. The biggest they? spoiler. So I don't think that ruins anything. The biggest spoiler I might consider is the Queen of Hearts playing uh, Croquet. See, this was my first time watching yeah. this film. And I didn't notice Shut up. Is it really? any of that. I yeah I I've I've only oh, I, I only I think I said in the last podcast I have no idea if it was Carl or not. my um my only experience with Alice in Wonderland was the Tim Burton movie so this was oh wow this was like a whole new world so I haven't seen um, a whole new world I haven't seen um the Tim Burton version so it's interesting uh, it's poopy so yes that's probably why I haven't seen it I, I'm not a big Tim Burton fan um and you're gonna find out. <laughs> <laughs> let's get back to the film um so this is actually uh, the first shot opens and it's a church and it's a bridge and it's a typical british park and there's some lovely butterflies that have been animated over it i don't know how they did because it's that matte painting kind of style but then with these very vibrant butterflies now i wonder if that's a bit of foreshadowing i don't know there is some gorgeous animation throughout this film and when we get to it well in during the deep dive i'll point out the bits that are my favorite but there are some really lovely bits now i brought up last time i think last time we did a, a classic so that was what uh, 101 dalmatians and i said what's the deal with walt and london or Walton, England. This film. What's the deal? This film. What's the deal? <laughs> what's the deal with Disney and no, um, comedians getting coffee aside? The first this is the first Disney animated film set in the UK is Alice in Wonderland, which I was surprised we got to fifty one before that happens. But I guess a lot of them were like animal related kind of or fantasy kind of lands without distinct places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you set Alice anywhere other than England. It, it wouldn't work. I've seen versions where they've Americanized it further and I, it just is horrendous. I think a Canadian Alice could work because how much more polite can you get than that? <laughs> I want Yeehaw Alice with a big old like, Stetson. She wouldn't be talking about manners or things like that. Is you know, there are some moments where it's just like, but, but, but the manners that we do this and that really wouldn't, I don't think. Uh... Curious, sir, and curious, sir. <laughs> 
So uh, I've got here that Mary Porins, Mary Porins, Mary Poppins' boring cousin is articulating to Alice, and we see why <laughs> distance education is hard because <laughs> Alice is being taught by. Uh, is, is this her big sister? I saw somewhere that. I believe it's okay. her, in the book. It's her sister. So yeah, it's never actually expressed in the film. But yeah. So oh, I thought she was like a governor. Yeah, me too. But in my research, she came yeah. up in, in the cast list as Alice's sister, and I went, "It's got to be that yeah. character." So this is why distance yeah. education does not work because the kid goes, I don't want to listen to you and falls asleep this in a tree. Makes, this makes more sense as to why the governess is such a bad governess then because I'm like, why on earth would you yeah. try and teach a history lesson to a child in a tree? And also, why do you not follow her when she runs away? And this is where we should talk about the woman who plays, woman, the girl who plays Alice, Catherine Beaumont, who would also play... Wendy. Woofer Wendy, that's right. Oh and my God, I thought I, was, I, I thought I was going crazy watching no, this it's, film. It, it's her, yeah. Well, I thought I was too, but for different reasons. Um, <laughs> she was scouted and cast by Walt personally after seeing her in a small part in the film called On an Island with You three years before. Uh, she was also the character model for Alice. The pictures are amazing. Have you seen any of the animation pictures that they, the still pictures they use no, for animation? They are amazing. She looks exactly like Alice, the girl who voices her, Catherine Buont. She looks like Alice. Um, and they did an amazing job with like set. And her costume yeah. in the um, like live pictures that they took for the animation, and it just looks—it looks amazing. Like if they'd have done live action with Catherine Beaumont as Alice, it would have been good. Now, but she, um, obviously they went animation with it. Assuming they went voice first, uh, and then animation, which tends to be what you do, especially because they yeah they base the character model off of her. She can't be any older than I've got twelve, but twelve would be too love late. I mean, she's thirteen when it's released. She's got to be ten or eleven when they record the dialogue, and when she's recording the dialogue and singing the songs, they've put her in the Alice dress. So every time she was delivering her lines, she was in character, like literally, yeah. she was in the costume. Uh, and she would do the character of Alice and the character of Wendy, and she would later go on to reprise the role of Alice in the video game Kingdom Hearts in two thousand and two. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, that makes so much sense now. Kingdom Hearts was my jam. I don't know why, because it's awful. But She's got to be like 62 years of age when she's voicing Kingdom Hearts. So, wild world under her. She would later go on to teach elementary school for 36 years. So, she's obviously on the, uh, what's it called, George, of a Disney, she's a Disney legend? Yeah. Yeah. so we have a you know we meet is it Dia Dinah what's the cat's name Dinah the cat sorry you blurred Dinah. you blurred right in the middle of your character name it's what the cat Dinah Dinah okay someone's in the kitchen with Dinah Dinah turns out as the cat um, and then we get this idea about oh if I the problem with books is they have no pictures. And she I'm agrees going, with Gaston. Then. I'm going okay. Talk okay. Talking cartoon. I mean, that's what that's what Disney's doing here, isn't it? Let's she get rid of the comic book. Let's get rid of all the books and let's just yeah. replace them with pictures. He's describing what Disney does. Um, and then she starts. We got our first song in a world of my own. And originally, it was this other song that was supposed to be in place here called "Beyond the Laughing Sky." Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll 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 set it up, George, and then if you got somewhere you want to go with it, by all means. Because the thought was it was supposed to be this slow number. It was supposed to be very, very, um, like, somewhere over the rainbow. Like, like that same feel. Like, open with your big uh, songbird number. But then Walt felt it was a little bit too down. Also, Catherine Beaumont had a little bit of a hard time hitting some of the notes. So they yeah. went for In a World of My Own, which was easier for her 
to hit. That doesn't surprise me from one of the later songs. Georgia, do you I know, was about to say the same. Do you, do you know anything about anything extra about? Uh... Yes. Yeah, so um, that song was later reused for Peter Pan. It is actually the same tune as um, Second Star to the Right. So oh, that really? open, big okay. opening song in oh. Pan. That is the tune that is sung to. Um, and there is still access to the full lyrics to Beyond the Laughing Sky. And I actually sang it as Alice once in a college production, okay. um, which was really, really cool for me, um, being a massive Alice fan and like finding that piece of history and digging it back out and having Alice sing that song actually as she kind of would have done, which I really enjoyed. So, um, yeah, that song is a beautiful song. But, yeah, it got reused for Second Star to the Right in Peter Pan. So, in the song that does make it in, in a world of my own, uh, Ethan, I don't know how much you were paying attention. I don't know if it's so much an exposition show as, like, this song, as is this is a song that kind of does what the opening, like, painted pictures did in the in the overture. Here's everything you're going to see in the film. I called it the foreshadow song the foresh- in my notes. <laughs> foreshadow <laughs> is, the- like, is like a hint. This isn't, this isn't a hint. This is just flat out. Here's what you're going to see over the next... Cats 61 minutes. Rabbits. Yeah. <laughs> we'll decide in fancy little houses. I just like that she rhymes houses with trousers. That's you can only do that if you're favorite. you can only do that if you're British. Because yeah, if I were to go yeah. houses and trousers, I mean it's just it's just too obvious. <laughs> houses and trousers. Alice kind of dozes off on the patch of grass at the end of her song, and then we have the white rabbit who appears. And we kind of have a second song because the White Rabbit does his little "I'm late, I'm late," and kind of has like a little. It's 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 very Patter esque. It's yeah. another connection to Peter Pan. It's the guy who voices Smee, right? Is it? I think so. There's definitely some yeah. connections. Excellent. There. Someone, wants to, someone wants to, to just justify that. I've got my notes here. Alice, if this was not a Wonderland cartoon, would be killed in moments. She is weighed <laughs> for a number of reasons. Number one, she'd be trapped in some like tunnel thing somewhere because <laughs> there's not enough room for her when she starts that and this begins if, if i had had the patience i would have started the count of a number of times that alice has to crawl through things in this film <laughs> spoiler let's have a song about that because it's going to be a lot yeah also she's way too chill now if we go with the notion that this is all a dream that explains this to a degree but if i can just treat it as um literal for a moment she is way too chilled out about falling I put she same. starts to fall down she's the tunnel. Saying, she goes, bye, bye. Donna. <laughs> bye, <laughs> the cat's just going, Donna. the cat's going, which I believe is code for, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I found this bit quite interesting, actually, because they, they uh, I can't remember who says it, but they say curiosity often leads to trouble. It's probably Alice like saying the cat's thoughts about the cat. It is Alice that says that, yeah. Um, and then the cat's following her, but doesn't fall down the hole. And she says goodbye, and then the cat's left behind. And I'm wondering, did curiosity kill the cat? No, it didn't. It almost killed Alice. Almost killed Alice. um, The white rabbit is voiced by the same person who voices um, Mr. Smee. His name is Bill Thompson. He also voices the dodo in this as well as the white rabbit. Um, During the fall, she goes, oh, after this, I shall think nothing of falling downstairs. I've got in my notes, no way that line makes it in the script today. Because you'd have some child like fall down the stairs and like <laughs> sue Disney for the idea. Um, during the fall, we start to get the first of the things that shouldn't be there. So we have mirrors that are upside down. Uh, we have the psychedelic colors. So if you were at a university campus in the 1970s and you'd ingested your popcorn, this is when it starts to get good. Um, 
Floating books. Floating books. Uh, lots of clocks. Clocks moving around. Things don't not appearing as they should. And her she... skirt and all her petticoats are actually her parachute, which I love. Yeah. And the animation for that is brilliant as well. And then she lands... And she's walking on the ceiling, but the ceiling's not the ceiling. We get that kind of visual 180 where we get, like, everything literally is upside down. And she has to climb out of the hole. Sorry? I'm not quite sure. Can you you go into some detail as to what you mean? She just has to climb out of the hole that she's in. So she she lands on her head. So she has to, like, backwards roll out of the hole and into into the room that's the right way up. Oh, okay. And then um, we get, she gets multiple doors she has to crawl through, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller as she opens each one up. And then, of course, that last door ends up being a very small panel in a gigantic room she gets into next. And just when we get the, the classic line, curiouser and curiouser, as Alice looks around, and then we have the doorknob. He says, you did give me quite a turn. You gave me quite a turn. I like the doorknob. I love the doorknob. The doorknob is great. Yeah. The doorknob is so is terrifying in this. The amount of time she like tries to yank his nose off and he actually has physical recoil in pain. There's too much things that have sentience in this world. Uh, I would agree with <laughs> that. It, it terrifies me. It's like a level up from the sugar pot. Uh, one, <laughs> and I guess the one good turn deserves another. And I'm like, doorknob with the jokes. Really appreciate that. And then he, he explains his joke because Alice doesn't react. He goes, doorknob, turn, yeah. get it. <laughs> and she's too big to get in. So there's a bottle on the table. It says, drink me. So she shrinks. But then the doorknob goes, by the way, I'm locked. Now, I guess so the doorknob is also the locking mechanism as well. So he's more of a knob. But if he's a sentient knob, can he not? Sentient <laughs> knob. <laughs> so if he's a sentient knob, can, 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 can he not, like, disengage the lock? Or is he, like... Is he like, like, this is my life's purpose. I cannot unlock it. No, that route, that unlocking the lock requires the extra key. You have to do that. He can't flick his own switches. No, but it turns out you don't have to do it. Well, no, because she shrinks small enough to go through the Well, hang on, because spoilers, because at first she's going to get big. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, jeez. So eat me. And so she eats it. This, like thing biscuit biscuit edible and she yeah, edible <laughs> I, I wonder how people got the idea to do this in the 70s <laughs> alice is eating and drinking anything you put in front of her in this movie <laughs> and so she gets really really big and then she cries a lot a lot a lot a lot and if you think about the things that will happen to alice later in this film it's really weird that this is the moment that she decides <laughs> is the worst and has to cry her eyes out. she learns throughout George's first rant, she learns throughout the film, which is why she isn't crying by the end of it. This isn't uh, overwhelming at the beginning. And she does cry later in the film. Yeah, I'd cry. So she drinks, and then it turns out, sorry, she gets too big, and there's a little bit of a bottle with a little bit more of it. She drinks it and gets so small she lands in the bottle, which then she ends up using the bottle and the wave of her tears as like a little like lifeboat. Conveniently lines her up with the with the keyhole because she's cried that much and then it and i realize you 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 have to kind of leave you know literal literal common sense kind of at the door and suspend your disbelief (laughs) at the door (laughs) suspend your disbelief massively but she managed apparently a door locks not a big deal if you know the 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 knob can open his mouth up wide enough. The keyhole. <laughs> the keyhole can, can, can open his mouth up wide enough that so she can like, get through. So at this point then, she's on like this like ocean. 
and we meet like I've got like a Gilbert and Sullivan dodo parrot and toucan because they're doing some sort of a naval charmy. It could have been at a pinafore. It could have been at a pirates. It was just <laughs> a naval song. And the and the parrot looked a lot like the three caballeros parrot. And the owl looked yeah, like Archimedes no. from Sword and Stone. It was like if Archimedes red. had like a cool ninja brother. <laughs> he was like red like and like. I felt the the owl looked way too cool to me in a 1950s film. I thought it would be like some like 1990s <laughs> remake. How can we make Disney cool again for the kids? But it's okay because they reused him later on. Yeah. Um, and then they're on the sea until they're not on the sea. And then they have to dance around a rock. And that will make you dry even though you're getting hit by waves. And Georgia, I know you're going to tell me that's the point. Everything is upside down and that uh, doesn't make sense. And I can buy into that. That's fine. And it's our first piece of nonsense. Yeah, nonsense. The, jolly, the Jolly Caucus race. How is that the first piece of nonsense? It's our first piece of nonsense that's portrayed through somebody else thinking that they're right when, of course, they aren't. Okay. It's, it's, it's the first political stance and, in the film. And of course... Wait, uh, what? What? Political, political stance. St- how's it political? Oh, my goodness. Alice is an entire... This whole story of Alice is a political book. Okay, I've got some thoughts at the end. Can we, can we come, come back around to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, but this is the first kind of time we see a leader, as in the dodo, okay. telling people what to do, and he's wrong, but he's okay because he's on top of the rock with the oh, fire. Oh, okay, I, I get you, because I've got yeah. some thoughts about that actually myself at the end, so it's interesting. Um, yeah. So, on the a rock, and then we have uh, the rabbit comes around, and then we meet Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and I can't understand half of what they say. <laughs> Can you not? No. <laughs> It's not that difficult. Half of what they say is just honks. Now, I don't want to get too much into the book, but in the book, they weren't described as identical. They weren't even described really at all. So really, it was this Disney animation that's created this image that actually every sort of iteration, Disney or not, that's happened since has kind of borrowed from this. Yeah. Yeah. So the the Tweedles in this can't have definitely had a big influence on every other. um, Sorry, my brain's blanked every other like iteration of Alice where you see the Tweedles um, mostly because they, it makes sense that they're identical, or at least that they're twins because their names are so similar. Um, and I think they are described as, some, as stout, weird children or something like it's that both, in the books. It's, good, very, good ge- it's very generic though, as far as the description yeah. versus what was left to do. Can I just bring this up? Because Georgia, you in the, um, you in our episode on Hunchback of Notre Dame, Mm-hmm. went on an absolute tear about the quality of Esmeralda's dress with the smoke. Oh, yeah, yes, the white thing, yes. How many pieces of mud and grass and water and whatnot does Alice have to crawl through, and yet her dress is like a tie dad <laughs> the whole way through? She's a Victorian child. She would be clean at all times. It doesn't matter. I'd, I'd, argue, I'd argue Victorian children are one of the more dirtier kinds well, of children. Well, this is like the upper Depends class. Upper class, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we haven't talked really much about the character design of Alice. Maybe a good chance to do that now. I mean, obviously, the theories that in the book she's based off of the real life um, inspiration, we believe, Alice Little. Yeah, uh, and there's a whole story about that. Which, if you want to research it, go on ahead. But um, it seems that this one's somewhat 
um, true to that while also apparently being very Catherine Beaumont at the same time. Yeah, so they kind of mesh the um, sketchy drawings that we get in the book of Alice and make it more smooth-lined and her, the facial facial features are very much Catherine Beaumont as well yeah. as the hair. Um, but pretty much everything else is... The outfit itself is very much akin to the original illustrations. And I don't overuse the word, but I think this one fits. I mean, that dress is iconic. I mean, you see someone in a blue... You go to any Halloween party, and if there's a girl at all in a blue dress with that sort with of white... white pinafore. Pinafore. Yeah. You're going Alice. You are Alice and Alice yeah. in Wonderland. Doesn't matter what the rest of the costume <laughs> looks like. Doesn't matter if they're a brunette. It doesn't matter if they're a redhead. Doesn't matter... Headband. Oh, yes. And the headband. The black headband. Absolutely. But, but failing that, I think you'd be all right with just the dress. It really is iconic. Yeah, um, there's a song that's called, I don't know if it's called That's Logic or That's Manners or That's Something that Tweedledee and Tweedledum sing. I've just oh, got, I can't make Morrison out what they're saying. The Morrison is Oyster Boys. No, we're, we're, no. We're, not, we're not there yet. You're, you're about oh. a song early. They sing, <laughs> they sing a very underwhelming song before your boy band gone wrong. I um, forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. I have a question. Did anyone else notice or can anyone else explain why Tweedledum and Tweedledee's hats, they have little flags on them. They change from green to yellow and then back again and back again and back again. I believe that's just an animation thing. I think they're supposed to be yellow, but I think in just different um, versions of the film and the coloration of it, I think it's just not not consistent. I didn't notice that at all, uh, but such as me. Uh, Ethan, I'm going to go on to something that you just about had a, uh, had a popcorn experience yourself over just a second ago. <laughs> I got uh, in such a weird, weird sort of mood about about this scene because it just i don't hate it but i don't like it either i just have very strong opinions weirdly on it i'm with you it's a really strange thing and it's completely independent of everything else i love this scene but i do agree i think i think i do as well but it was i was expecting to see more stories like this throughout and it's just the only one i think this is what this is the point at which i thought it reminded me of three caballeros and the package film type thing um that was kind of when that thought crossed crossed my head, so that's probably why. But yeah, I absolutely love this little scene. I believe there were other stories that were considered for inclusion but got chopped, but this one does sort of okay. reside itself. So really quickly, the walrus and the carpenter. Uh, the walrus seems to be the guy in charge, although that in the, the, the beginning of the story, it seems that they're more equals. It is also called the story of the curious oysters, though. Oh, is it? it yeah, they say the walrus and the carpenter, or the story of the curious oysters. Yeah, I didn't it's, care enough to write that part down. It's almost like they had two ideas for the name of the scene back at Disney HQ, and then just decided oh, to I run ma- with both of them. I imagine that's how it's listed in the uh, in the actual original text. Well, maybe. Yeah, my my book is in the car. Otherwise, I'd go and get it. But <laughs> so uh, generally, well. The walrus comes across. The carpenter comes across some oysters. Tips off the walrus. The walrus gets excited. Caillou uh, Kaye, and then Kaye. I love how the oysters' little top shells turn into little bonnets. And so, so the, the walrus comes down. He's got to kind of seduce them into why it's a good idea to come on land with him. And Mama Oyster's not having any part of it. And the narrator tells us because she knew that it was too early in the year for the, time the oysters was right. time was not right <laughs> to leave her oyster bed and then she looks at the calendar behind her and it's march and then the r flashes and i laughed out loud at this part because you shouldn't eat mollusks in months with an r in them 
And I found that really, really funny and clever. See, I didn't know that, but apparently it's a thing. That makes more sense. Yeah. yeah. I was like, why does the R flash? But yeah, apparently it's because you're not supposed to. It's yeah, like it's like an old rule of thumb that people would have been familiar with. You don't eat oysters or clams or things like that. Yeah. Like it's until not actually, you get to May. It's not actually true. Like obviously supermarkets do still sell mussels and things at other times in the year and restaurants still serve them. But traditionally you're only supposed to eat mussels between May and wow. August. That's kind of like we're in white after Labor Day, I guess. Is that a thing over here? Do you know what I'm saying? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, my word. In, I know yeah, I knew, what Labor Day is. But oh, right. Like, you wouldn't have I've Labor never Day. never experienced In one. America, there's a rule for women that you don't wear white after Labor Day, which is the first Monday in September has gone by. So white is a summer color, and you don't wear it after that. What if you get married after September? Well, you're allowed to wear it then. <laughs> Marriage supersedes the, the no white after Labor Day rule. If anything, it's going to guarantee that no one shows up to your wedding in white. Excellent. So. That's, that's I just a real like to pet say, peeve of mine. I just like to say again, I have never seen this film. I don't know what I was expecting, but the Pied Piper Walrus and his Oyster Sons was yep. not what I was expecting <laughs> for this film. I was just expecting some 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 kind of hinky, uh, like weird stuff with Alice and the Mad Hatter and maybe like the Rabbit. And then I got the 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 the, the little Dumplin' Boys talking about like oyster genocide and. And all this other stuff later on, which I'm also going to get into. And I'm really confused and kind of scared because I genuinely felt like I was having some weird kind of aneurysm during all of this film. And the oyster scene is where I lost my mind. But, but isn't it great? Well, if we can just finish <laughs> recapping it. So they sort of seduce and lure the oysters to follow the walrus into this shed, which has like restaurant, fish dinners, da 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 So at this point you have to go, oh. The oysters can't read. But then they get and they sit around the table and there's a menu and the menu says dinner today, oysters. At which point one of the oysters in that three minutes has learned how to read (laughs) and they all get really scared. And then like the carpenter comes back from preparing the bread and the mustard sauce. And he has spilt so much of that sauce there would be none left But he brings it back in. And the uh, walrus is laying back like he's had some popcorn of his own and is in sort of an altered state. He's drunk or something off. At which point now the carpenter's going to get... Well, I wonder whether he's had some bad oysters because it's a month mm-hmm. with an R in it. Well, because... And well, he's a walrus. Um, but then the carpenter's like getting all mad and like the walrus runs away from him. I'm like, wait, hang on. At this point, you've been bullying him. unless, And plus, you've eaten a bunch of, a bunch of oysters. You can't outrun anybody. <laughs> but it really because they represented the oysters as these little baby children i mean it was a little bit who it was a little Brutal. bit harsh i mean what's the moral here and it could be i mean if, if i can sort of jump on um kind of the argument georgia was trying to make earlier um is this another leader who's promising you something and then literally eats you as <laughs> as a yeah this is our second political story in in the film yeah I'd be very curious in seeing Jonathan Swift and Lewis Carroll and seeing how close together they were because they seem to have a lot of uh, threads that are get pulled on because Swift wrote something called A Modest Proposal. Really quick version. He just implied that they should, the Irish should sell their children to the English for meals. Now, oh. it's, 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 it's satire. It's supposed to show how England is eating Ireland figuratively. Like, it's just, you know. But I'd be very, it seems like a very similar message and they would have been around around the similar time without knowing about my timelines i believe um alice is originally based off of the 
absurdity of English government and officials. Um, and this essentially is entirely is satire of London and its government and that kind of thing at the time. So it's very, very possible that um, your, your guy, if he's around at the same time, um, literary people at the time were not getting anything. They were not getting any sort of compensation for their work or anything. Um, it was all going towards maths and that side of things. Um, and at the time, this is the beginning of algebra. And so um, from what I've from what I understand, Lewis Carroll thinks algebra is a load of nonsense and that letters belong in books, not in maths. And so this kind of represents the nonsense of that time frame. Uh, just so I can jump in, uh, Jonathan Swift, Modest Proposal, 1729. So they wouldn't have been contemporaries at all, but it would have been something that he might have been borrowing that heritage a Quite little possibly, bit possibly, yeah. yeah. Um, You've not just got the political statements here, though, have you? Because it's also like a moral for Alice as well, because then Tweedledee and Tweedledum say something like, what's the moral of the story? Or what is the moral? And she says it's only a it's only got a good moral if you're an oyster or something like that and just kind of walks off. But yeah. it's clearly missing the point that she is getting curiouser and curiouser and really ought to not follow the, you know, Pied Piper slash trailer breadcrumbs or whatever you want to refer to it as. Is it about trust? Is it a message about not trusting new people? Not trusting authority? Don't know. There are a lot of danger. different morals and lessons throughout this film. Trust the people who you know? I don't know. Um, and so, but the story ends, and then she just walks off. Before they wouldn't leave, let her leave, but now that they've told their, their song story, she can walk. Don't and they try to tell her another story first? No, she just leaves, I think. They'd have, like, yeah, a, one they of them shaking, to. and I think they're talking about, like, an old man or something. Uh-huh. I can't remember what it well, was. she can they, leave. Yeah. Telling them each other a different story, and that's why she can leave. Oh, there we go. They're like a really bad improv troupe. So, we go to the White Rabbit's... Well, speaking of bad improv troupe, we continue our story. The White Rabbit's house, and there's... You're not going to believe this, guys. There's more crawling through doors. And she's going to change sizes again. Yep. Um, She comes across... She's just looking through the White Rabbit's house because he's late and she needs to... What does she need to find again? Find his gloves. Find his gloves, that's it. Because he can't get them. She has to do it. Because he calls her... Marianne! Marianne! And so she goes up there as Marianne. And just goes, okay, you told me to do something. I must do it. And comes across, and she's kind of half looking, half snooping. She comes across this um, candy box of sorts and has a heart that says, eat me. Edibles. Alice, of course, just, you know, being incapable of not doing what an edible product tells her to do, goes ahead and does it. And you're not going to believe this guy. She gets really big again. To the point where she's like uh, the size of the house. And Gwen Stefani said, hello, I will use that for a music video. Thank you very much. <laughs> In case you've ever seen the video for What You Waiting For, uh, that is exactly, this This scene is definitely uh, pastiched TikTok, TikTok. TikTok, TikTok. Um, and so uh, the White Rabbit at this point goes, all right, something's not right. I've got a monster in my house. But then he calls, tracks down the dodo. And the dodo says, well, no, you need to kind of smoke her out. So he gets Bill the lizard to stop by. This lizard was the most normal thing in this scene. And that's terrifying. I really, I really like the, <laughs> the lizard. Sweet. Even if I felt he was the vocal coach and inspiration for Dick Van Dyke's role in Mary Poppins. <laughs> I have a question His Cockney about, accent's about not great. What, what's your question, question about Bill? About, I have a question about Bill the lizard later on. Okay. Um, but I'll wait, I'll wait till, till, till uh, it, that part's finished. 
And so the dodo forces the lizard into the chimney, a sentence I never thought I'd have to say. <laughs> and as the soot hits, as the soot hits Alice, she sneezes, and then we get sneeze the lizard step in time. So poor Bill. <laughs> Bill's dead, right? <laughs> Alice killed Bill. Like that's this is this is my one takeaway. Bill is dead. Bill is dead. Uh, and so they're going to continue to smoke. I have had that in my notes for a couple hours. Been really looking forward to saying that line. Um, and then they're going to smoke the monster out. And Alice looks out the window and goes, well, maybe if I eat that carrot, I will get small. Now, it, this is the greatest example of this works in the history of a film. Because her arms, which, which at the angles they're at, she shouldn't be able to reach the carrots in the ground. They should be kind of stuck kind of up here. But she grabs one. And when she gets the carrot up to her mouth, it's actually almost a comparable size. It's like the, like double the size of the, of the rabbit who's holding on to it. And I don't know why the rabbit, like, you know, the dodo's getting ready to burn his house down. If that is like, oh, geez. Oh, please don't do. Oh, oh, really going to burn my house down? But don't mess with this carrots. That that rabbit will go to war over those. No, no, no. Because no, there rabbit. is points. There is points with this rabbit where he is like succumb to peer, peer pressure. Absolutely. And he's like, don't burn the house down. Don't burn it. Oh, you want some help? I'll help you. And this <laughs> happens like maybe five times in the film, not just with him burning the house down, but there's a bit later on where he also is like, don't kill someone. Nah, it's okay. I mean, people think that in, in a world full of zany characters that Alice is the straight character, so to speak. Uh, I, I'd argue it's very much the rabbit. The rabbit, I think, is representative yeah. of the kind of middleman. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, yeah. So maybe maybe he's the maybe he's the middle class, the working man, running late for somewhere we don't know what, but always he's agitated, always used. afraid. He works the, for... the one who'll be yelled at. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, right. So I've got in my notes. All of Alice's problems are caused by or fixed by eating and drinking things. So, I wish that was my case. I'd love that. She eats the carrot, shrinks, gets out of there. And then she's too small now, and it's time for a bunch of pun insects. So we have the bread and butterflies. Uh, what else was there? The rocking horsefly. Horse the rocking horsefly. And then um, all the flowers. And then all the flowers start talking to her. And this is where I'm confused, because for some flowers, the petals and the flower itself is their face. But for others, it's just a hat, or it's their hair, <laughs> and their face is on the stem. One it of just the petals for one is cleavage. On Sorry, uh, one at a time. Ethan, you first. One of the petals for the, one of the flowers is cleavage. What do you mean, is cleavage? <laughs> like, it looks like it's, it's oh, modeled to look like cleavage. <laughs> and I'm doing, I'm moving my hands here to try and show the point. That's great for, for an audio format. The petals <laughs> or the leaves? I, I, I think it's the petals. George, what? It's the fancy, the fancy purple one. George, what, what are you trying oh, to say? Iris, there? yeah. The um, it just depends on the markings on the actual flower that they're based off of, where their face is. Yeah. Like, so on the pansies, like because pansies do have speckled faces like that, they've got their faces on the flower, and but freckles. they've done their best to make them look like where their faces actually would be and if they were flowers. And I think they, I think they're really well done. I, I really like the flowers. Well. And it's on Golden Afternoon, this song, where I start turning on this film. I think for I you. really like this. Song. Oh, did you really? So Alice learns the song in moments, and I know this is a trope of Disney films, but they give her a solo. And then I've got... 
That was a mistake. Are the daffodils or the sunflowers, whatever they are, they're turned into symbols? And when they get smashed... Daisies, okay. And when they get smashed together, they disintegrate and die. Now... Are these are these the only two flowers that aren't sentient in the whole thing, or or did we just watch one flower use two other as a musical instrument and kill them so they can hit the big finish to How the song? How do we know that they're dead? If if we go by the logic that their flower is their heads, their heads just exploded. Well, the petals have just fallen off. That doesn't mean <laughs> they're the in a dead. vegetative state. <laughs> 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 they're already pulled from the roots out to begin with. Anyway. Uh, they determine that Alice is a weed, and this begins the flower racism part of our film. Um, and then we now- get another, our third political message. And then one of the flowers is a dog, and another flower is a cat, which was weird. That was, that was the dog and caterpillar. Yeah. No, no, these are flowers. There was a flower that was a dog, and there was a flower that was a cat. No, it was uh, the dog and caterpillar. You're referring to the lion and the tiger. Flowers. Oh. One went woof 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 woof, and it had like a big dandelion head on it. Oh yeah, that's... and the other one was a cat, went, and it was like right beside the dog. Okay, there's another bit where there's a dog and caterpillar. I, I know, but I was okay. Um, and then smoke signals lead Alice to her next adventure, and we have the inspiration for every drug user who would ever watch this film: the pothead hookah caterpillar, like smoking a who for some pipe. reason can only spell out vowels. Until <laughs> until he needs to speak web speak and then like R and C's become so he'd have loved texting. And question marks. He, and question he's marks. Smoking A E I O P U Oh my word. <laughs> and then um he, he asks her who is she and she goes, I don't know, I don't I'm not myself, which is clever and funny at all, and then I swear I gapped out for three minutes and he was still asking her, Who are you? And I'm like Where's the barking scene, like the the, the Twilight bark from um, <laughs> Hundred One Dalmatians? Because I want to go back there. Because this was <laughs> oh, just dear. at least that was other characters like her, you know getting something and reinter. This was just two characters like doing the same thing for three minutes. But then drugs make him aggressive. Yes, he take he takes a fat jewel puff and he's like, "That's incorrect," and gets really angry. And I feel like I'm back in Cambridge looking at like college students, and it terrifies me. Well, he tells Alice to keep your temper, and I thought he was speaking to me, because at this point I was really, really getting frustrated <laughs> with the film. Georgia? I believe, just going with the smoking caterpillar, I believe this is the first time in Disney animated history that smoke is depicted as bad. Um, so we get Alice coughing at it and, like, th- throwing it away from her face and that kind of thing. And I think it's the first time in Disney history where, like, the element of smoking around children, just smoking in general, is depicted as a bad thing rather than as just a casual thing. Okay. Although, we, uh, in 101 Dalmatians, we would get the smoking trifecta. <laughs> Where, what was his name again? Henry? Roger. Roger. Roger loved that pipe. Roger loved that yeah, pipe. Yeah, so no, I'm not saying it's not, it's it's kind of a, it's portrayed as like a doing a bad thing around children. Okay. Like, you shouldn't smoke around because they're... It coughs because they cough at it. It is really interesting they chose a non-traditionally American smoking device for that. Yeah. Let's get some of that ethnic smoking in there. <laughs> Nothing good hard of Americans would do. <laughs> so, um, and then, it's, like I said, keep your temper. Is he speaking to me? Is he speaking to himself? Neither of the above because he completely freaks out. But then he tells Alice, as he's turned into a butterfly, that she's on a magic mushroom, literally, 
and instructs Alice to eat the magic mushroom. Now, I don't think in 1951 they realized what these things would sort of end up being <laughs> in, like, counterculture. But she does. And you're not going to believe this, guys. She eats something, and then she goes way too big. And then she eats something, and she goes way too small. And in the middle, there's a bird that's annoyed about her, like, eating her eggs. Yeah. And then she licks the mushroom, and she's finally the right size. <sighs> And I'm like, finally, she's got it right. Like, That's right, she's, kids. She's eaten so many different things and it's gone horribly wrong. And only now has she decided to take a tiny little taste of it. And that's right, kids. Licking the Learning. mushroom will solve all your problems. That's the message it of the film. It just takes her a really long time to learn. And then 39 minutes into a 78-minute film, we meet the Cheshire Cat, who... If Crackhead I... bag push! <laughs> <laughs> Thirty-nine minutes. We meet the Cheshire Cat. Uh, Cheshire the Cat was played, or the Cheshire Cat was played by Sterling Holloway, who was also the voice of the original Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Talk about two totally different characters. <laughs> and also, I want to say, oh no, what's the snake from uh, Car? Car? Yeah, Car uh, in Jungle Book. Is it also the same Car then who would have appeared in Robin Hood? Maybe. So. Um, and this is one of those iconic characters. So the smile and the eyes are independent. His teeth are musical keys. His ears are movable. He can be invisible. And he just gives a lot of double speak. It really doesn't matter which way you go. Um, he knows about the white rabbit, but then says he doesn't know about the white rabbit. I'd be very curious if this is like a, about the politician's double speak. Yeah. It's a, it's a, are we on three now? I think political messages. Yeah. Three or four. Up four. I think at this point. He's just yeah. her, he talks about standing on your head, and most everyone's mad here. And he goes, I'm not all there myself, as he goes trans, transparent, translucent. I thought that was cool. <laughs> I missed that. And he's gone. He's gone in less than three minutes, which is a shame, because some characters I went, they overstay their welcome. But the Cheshire Cat's one of those ones I'm like, you're one of the ones I think of with this film. Yeah, but he comes back. Well, spoilers. Um, <laughs> and then we have the song, Very Merry Unbirthday. And we've got, I've got my notes that rehearsals for Be Our Guest are well underway at the Hatter household <laughs> because all the crockery is preparing for a guest they don't want, actually. Yeah, they've done the animation for it back in um, Sword in the Stone. Yeah, the Sugar Pot. I'm, con I'm convinced somehow remember. Merlin steals, maybe Archimedes' cousin Red Owl steals a Sugar Pot and gives it to Merlin. <laughs> um, and this is where we meet our trio of the Mad Hatter, the March Hare, and the Dormouse. Ethan, you want to say something? And I love this them. scene, this scene, if I thought that the oyster scene was, like, going off the rails, this scene is where the car has crashed off of the, of the cliff and is now just a wreck because I was really confused at points and it's, like, every kind of nightmarish dream scenario ever, he eats plates and everything's, like, upside down. I love it. I'm terrified. I'm going to keep saying I'm terrified during this episode because I've never felt like so like so confused over what I'm supposed to and there is a scene with half a cup later on which just broke my sanity. I love it. How much of this film is somebody saying something odd? Alice going, "What's that?" And then them explaining it to her in this inventive and maybe double speaky kind of way. A lot of it, yeah. yeah. But it's it's at the end of the day, this is instead of her lesson. So, like her oh, teaching from her sister. This is okay. 
it's all lessons. Yeah. It is people talking at her and telling her what she should think. And then we have a reprise or extended version of Very Merry on birthday. And she keeps getting halfway through making a cup of tea or halfway through someone making her a snack and then told to move on to the next part. Now, if I can ignore the metaphor, although I do like it, this whole film for me is one big tea party. As soon as I get used to something and go, I think I've got it. I just want to see a payoff. To No, we're moving on. And I'm like, I just want something to finish and have some sort of resolution. And that frustration that Alice feels in the tea party, I feel the whole movie. You get you pay off at the end. Just wait another ten minutes. I really pay off's a generous word. I really don't get this scene at all. Um, I don't get why the Mad Hatter says everything with his tongue sticking out. It's it's like, he's mad. Now Georgia <laughs> cracked a teapot like his, an egg. He doesn't have his tongue sticking out the rest of the time. Like when he's not talking, it's just when he starts to talk, he sticks it out. And it's like, why would you do that? Now Georgia, I would be remiss here if I did not let you. Um, just talk about your feelings about this scene. <laughs> Try and keep it under 15 minutes. But uh, definitely this would be something where I, I, this is probably a big scene for you. So I'm going to go ahead and let you definitely do the uh, rebuttal here. And I'm going to just sit back and let you kind of, I'm going to try my best anyway, to let you just speak the entirety of your mind on it. Um, yeah, you're right. This scene is a big one for me. The Mad Hatter holds a place near and dear to my heart. I absolutely love him. I love the way the character is written. I love the topsy-turvy way of the entire thing. I think the fact that Alice doesn't get her tea and doesn't get to do anything and they're constantly saying clean cut, move down, is it's just reminiscent of trying to get things done and trying your hardest and then it just not working because of someone else. Like and there's a <laughs> There's a beautiful message in it. Um, the Mad Hatter as a character and as a voice and as kind of a, I don't know what the right word is, just as a way of life almost is amazing. I think it's incredible. I love him. Um, the logic and stuff that goes with him, his logic, I think is hilarious. Um, the fact that he thinks the White Rabbit's clock is two days slow, exactly two days slow, is brilliant. Um, so the bit when the he's then rabbit. fixing it. Huh? I feel so sorry for the White Rabbit. He's yeah, there is that little bit at the end. He d- does destroy his watch. I like to think he buys him a new one. Um, he brings it back to life and then kills it again. <laughs> another one of these sentient objects no the watch is never sentient it just kind of has an energy burst so he fixes it with all the with the butter and the sugar and the jam and the tea and then someone suggests mustard and he gets so upset about the mustard it just it makes me happy because he's like mustard don't be so silly like as if everything else that's happened isn't silly it it's just so nice it's so It's just gorgeous. I love it. I love him. I love the characters. I think he's great. And I love the animation in this scene. Just quickly, the teapots and the steam that comes out of those teapots. Just imagine the detail that had to go into a hand-drawn frame to make steam look that fluid. The same with the caterpillar smoke. Like, that's incredible. Um, And I have big props to the animators for that bit. I think it's great. Uh, Yeah, so it is one of the ones you look forward to and you go, okay, Cheshire Cat into the into the birthday party we we've hit sort of the the big characters here um there's a great j- joke that's never answered why is a raven like a writing desk 
uh, Lewis Carroll never intended for that to have an answer. So uh, yeah. he, he didn't get tired of people asking him the question, though. But um, um, the tea thing, um, no time, destroy the watch, the unbirthday present. Most of this was Edwin kind of ad-libbing. And Walt was there in the studio kind of watching him do that and told the animator, hey, that's just pretty funny. Why don't you use that speech in the movie? And the animators went, we can't use it. There's too many background noises on the film, so it won't work. And Walt apparently said, well, that's your problem and walked out of the room. (laughs) So with a great deal of work, the Disney sound technicians managed to re-record Wynn's dialogue and erase all the background noises so that Wynn's ad-libs were used in the final animated film. And it's so worth it. I think the Mad Hatter here is at his peak. And the Mad Hatter that I love personally is the Parks Mad Hatter, um, how he appears there. Um, And this is very, very reminiscent of the voice and the personality, not the look. Um, If anyone knows has seen the Mad Hatter in the parks, he looks very different. He still has a green hat and a blue. um, But he's a a handsome young man, I'm assuming. But his jacket is bright orange his shoes are massive green boots he's not a young man he still has white hair um, and a big nose a big prosthetic nose on he has and freckles um but he's out obviously because in the in the cartoon he's quite a short stout little man he's just a regular hype man with a big orange coat on and a massive green hat um but his personality there is gorgeous and i love it in the film uh they did um sort of tailor his look much like they were catherine beaumont with alice they did sort of base the character's look around Ed Wynn and the way he actually looked. And we've spoken about this before, but uh, he was sort of f- in a very friendly way parodied by Alan Tudyk in uh, Wreck-It Ralph in his portrayal of Turbo yes. or King Candy. That's an Ed Wynn send-up. And, of course, Ed Wynn was Uncle Albert in uh, Mary Poppins, which we've covered on the podcast before. So Ed not- Wynn is a legend. Ed Wynn, I, be- I like to think Ed Wynn was robin williams before robin williams was robin williams i think if edwin was alive i thought you said robbie williams for a minute i was like (laughs) i'd love to see edwin like our shadow way does an angel (laughs) (laughs) no i think they had the same spirit um and it's one that is completely lovable um so then you won't believe this guys but alice has lost the rabbit again (laughs) and she has to go chasing after it and then a rabbit who's late Yes, the same one who's still late. And then Alice Alice wants to go home, and I have in my notes, I hear you, sister. Um, She's in the wrong woods, even though she's gone back the way she came, and uh, there's these creatures with glasses, and this felt like padding runtime. So there's creatures with glasses, birds that are umbrellas. We're told, don't step on the mama wraps, which I did appreciate that idea. The umbrella birds I found really interesting, because when they fly up out of the pond or whatever it is, four of them land on a branch, and it's like a little precursor to the Jungle Book with the Beatles vultures. Um, but they are not her friends. No. Uh, she walks on a path. The broom dog wipes away the path. That's a really cool visual, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Alice is going to cry on the well-lit bench that suddenly appears. It was like being on like stage and like all of a sudden the lights come up and there's a bench where there wasn't one before. <laughs> yeah. It very much reminded me of like being on stage as opposed to in a, in a cartoon. Uh, and we get the classic line where she said, I should have just stayed where I was, but I give myself very good advice, but I very seldom follow it. Me, Alice. That's me. <laughs> yeah. uh, she writes a song called Where. I believe it's also called The Trouble That I'm Always In. Uh, a bunch of random creatures start crying. They disappear. The cat comes back. Uh, 
We learn about the Queen's way, and she'll be mad about you. That's really quite funny in hindsight. I didn't pick up on it. Um, and the shortcuts to there is in a tree that wasn't there a few minutes ago. And you're not going to believe this, guys, but Alice has to crawl through another tree. Um, <laughs> and then we get the other big iconic scene, which is uh, the Queen's sort of court. And they're going to paint the roses red. Uh, and before we think this is too crazy that they're painting the roses red because they ordered the white ones by mistake, I had a friend, and I don't remember who it was, so it's good because I can't name drop them in it, where they said the queen was coming to inspect it, to, like, you know, the literal queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II, was coming to inspect the base for some reason, and they were painting the lawn to make sure it looked green. And I'm oh, like, yeah, so, so, so before we think this is that crazy, like, <laughs> you want to talk about, you know, a political statement not entirely untrue today mm-hmm. think about anything when you're being inspected the fake lengths oh, you might yeah. go to yeah uh, and that's anybody yeah. who gets inspected for, for 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 anything when you take your driver's test and you drive in a different way when you do the rest <laughs> of the time all the businesses or industries or public services in this country who get inspected and i'm sure oh, i i absolutely have stories about that but again i really ought not to yeah. um, publicly name and shame on a podcast so also, how have they not got paint everywhere, like all over their clothes? There is so much splashing around. But we find out the queen will kill anybody if she finds out the roses are white. And so, and so the queen, and the queen is played by Verna Felton, and I did a little bit of research on her. She has a history in the Disney vault, if you will. She played Mrs. Jumbo, the matriarch, in Dumbo. Oh. She played the fairy godmother in Cinderella. She played wicked Aunt Sarah in Lady and the Tramp. And then just to finish her whole role, she would finish playing an elephant. She was Winifred the Elephant in the Jungle Book. <laughs> so a, a pretty big resume. If you consider the size of the character, she's playing a very big resume. With the exception <laughs> of Aunt Sarah. Was she a big lady? I don't know. Uh, nor I don't know. But I'll tell you much, much with so many elephants, she had a rounded resume. <laughs> oh, <laughs> forget that, forget that one. The red and white. Just quickly, while we're at the red and white roses, I did want to point it out earlier, but I didn't get a chance to. In the flower scene um, in Golden Afternoon, the leader is a red rose, and the top soprano, as it were, this other soloist in it, is a white rose, oh, who's the only one that is actually kind to Alice at all. Um, okay. So just a bit of a nice little bit of foreshadowing. We get there about half an hour before it comes. So we meet the queen. Uh, we get a reprise of painting the roses red. Off with the heads of all the poor painters. They're going to lose their heads. And we meet the king. And the king is played by a guy whose name is brilliant. Dink Trout. (laughs) This would be his final role before he would pass away. He was an American actor. Uh, He's cute but ineffective. In the book, actually, he would go around pardoning everybody (laughs) who the queen would sentence to death. And we get little bits of this where he demands a trial. But we don't actually get... But there's a difference between what you can do in 15 pages versus what you can do in... 15 minutes and if this got 15 minutes of runtime i'd be surprised again i didn't know she was married when i watched this i was genuinely shocked because i was like oh there's never any reference to her husband or the king it's always just the queen of hearts i don't think the the king isn't in the tim burton one either oh no no it's not this is a this is very much a political message again though against the monarchy yep yeah, who's really running the country? Yeah. Uh, the croak, especially when it would be written, is it? Victor- is this a commentary on Queen Victoria? Oh, maybe. Possibly. Quite possibly. Uh, the croquet match, definitely an iconic moment from the film. 
Um, we see the queen, you know, missing the, I'm going to call it a ball. What is it? Like a groundhog? A hedgehog. hedgehog. A hedgehog. Um, and the hedgehog, you know, everything's sentient and like cheating because they're afraid of the queen. Alice knows enough not to protest against the cheating, although it didn't stop us from getting four minutes of Alice wrestling her flamingo. It's beautiful. Oh, it's terrible. It. It's stalling. No, it's so funny. Yeah. No, like, I don't want. tries it one way and then the roses it red. The other way. I don't want I to see Alice playing with a flaccid flamingo. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't do that. No, I, I found this scene really tedious. So I've just got croquet game trial. Ugh. Um, and then the Cheshire cat shows up and Alice can't stop talking to the Cheshire cat. Now she knows enough to go, I can't bring up the fact that everything's cheating against me. But the Cheshire cat comes up and all that wisdom just goes out the window. And she's completely lost. Um, the Cheshire cat uses his sort of, he's sort of present in the world, sort of not, to hook the flamingo, who now has gone non-sentient, apparently. Um, his beak underneath her dress, and she pulls her dress over her head and reveals her white and red-hearted bloomers to the world. And she's furious, and she wants to kill I almost said Cinderella wants to kill Alice. But the king goes, shouldn't there be a trial? And for the first time all film, there is some cause and effect between one scene and the next. Because it actually led to something. The trial of Alice. The whole thing has been leading to this. Um, so uh, they're going to go ahead and say, dead. And then he goes, well, shouldn't we call some witnesses? And I thought, okay, this is going to be a commentary. I've got written on my notes here. Is this a commentary on the legal system? I think it is. We call the hare, the mouse, the hatter, who do nothing. We talk about how it's a birthday, unbirthday, yada, yada, yada. Uh, The queen instructs the jury to write down exactly what she wants them to say. When Alice tries to correct and say, actually, they said this, she's told to shut up. And then all of a sudden, Alice goes, I have a mushroom. No, two mushrooms, in fact. Two pieces of the same mushroom. Yeah, but very different pieces yes. of the same mushroom. And so she eats the mushroom, the both one that makes her big. What? She eats them both at the same time, doesn't she? And she gets real, I don't know, and she gets really, really big. And then decides she's going to tell everybody off, and she's not going to leave, even though we're letting her go. I'm not going to leave. I'm going to tell you what I think. You And she does typical Disney, where, you know, the, the evil person is unattractive and fat and, you know, unladylike, whereas the pretty heroines, you know, and then tell her, you're fat, and you're ugly, and you're this, and you're that. And then she, like, shrinks and goes, uh-oh. Yeah, because she ate them, but I think it is because she ate them both at the same time. And it's like, Alice, yeah, why have you still not learned anything? You already got it right with the licking the <sighs> little bit of the mushroom earlier, and now you've just forgotten everything again. And so even though earlier in the film, going back the way she came didn't get her the way home, this time it kind of does. Because we sort of get the, the film in reverse, and we, we hit some high points again. We hit, um, oh, what do we hit for the second time? We hit the tea party. They go, would you like to join us in a cup of tea? And they actually go into the cup of tea. That was kind of cool. And then they're on the lake. like On the lake, the and they pass everybody going around the, the, the dodo on the little rock that's sticking up. And then she makes her way to the uh, doorknob who anticipates her problem and says, I'm still locked. But then looks through the keyhole, and there she is, still asleep. And she's screaming for herself to wake up as all the villains and members of Wonderland are chasing after her. And then she wakes up. 
That's it's, terrifying. Because it's actually the sister slash governess that's saying, wake up, wake her, up, yeah. wake up. And then she does, and they get told, don't you remember? Oh, never mind. It's time for tea. And we just get credits, and it's the end. And that is the film. So, what did we think? I really enjoyed the first 15 minutes or so. And I didn't, I didn't remember liking the film, so I was like really pleasantly surprised. And it had such a good credit scene, and then like a couple of really good bits. Really enjoyed the oyster bit, and then I, I just got so bored. And it didn't make any sense, and I, I yeah, I didn't like it. Ethan, you hadn't seen this before. What was your take? So I, I really wasn't sure what to think of this before watching it, and I was expecting a very, very different film, and. I, I don't have words to describe it because I really enjoyed it and it's so weird and so odd and I really love specifically absurdist humor. It's one of my favorite things and I really like when things mess with my brain and the one thing that I will use as an example is I'll have half a cup of tea and proceeds to cut like half the cup off. I wasn't expecting that. That entire scene... I did enjoy because it's so strange, and I think that's the main merit I have for this film, is it really subverted my expectations. Not in a Last Jedi way, but like in a, oh, this is where we're going. I'm strapping myself in for like what would eventually be just like, if I was on, on, the, on, the, on the popcorn that these uni students <laughs> were having, I would be terrified, especially in that last scene. And I, I, I like it. But I don't think I'm going back anytime soon to see it. But I have, like, nice memories of some scenes now. Okay. Um, George, I mean, I'm assuming you're, 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 you're exactly the same. I don't think you learned anything or gleaned anything new. Or did you? Um, not anything new, per se. I think I hadn't actually watched this version of Alice for a while. Um, so it was really nice to revisit it. It was like coming home to an old friend. Um, and picking up different bits and pieces that I hadn't perhaps noticed um, in the past, just more of the like political underlying messages more than the um, more than just like the baseline story, which I really appreciated. Um, but no, I, I can't explain it. I feel at home when I watch Alice, when I read Alice, when I'm surrounded by a product of Alice that is done well, I just, it's just the way my brain works. Like Alice talking to herself inside of her brain when like when we get her narration, we get her going, oh, I do wish I hadn't cried so much. Like after after she's like in her a sea of her own tears, but this kind of she's not particularly bothered by it, but she's going, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But she's do, has done it anyway. It just resonates so well with me. The whole character, the whole story all the different lessons the absurdity of it i hold very very near and dear to my heart and i completely understand it is not to everyone's taste it's not a traditional narrative it's not a kind of it's not a color by numbers story it is completely its own entity um and i adore it for its base level story for its characters and for its political messages that it puts out i think it's amazing um, I mean, I, got, I get to steer a conversation. So most of my stuff is generally known. I think Alice is something you get or you don't. Um, I appreciate the looking on it, even in the discussion with it, with this political sort of thing. I've got some more questions following that up. 
but I think somewhere in there, uh, there's certain elements of story that I do want, and this was a little bit um, too absurdist, too surreal. I think might even be a good, wo- good, good, good way to put it. Mm-hmm. And as a result, to get the true meaning, okay. If the message is anti-government or anti-authority or something along those lines, um, but a child who walks into the theater, who is your obviously intended audience, or Walt says it's for a family, a wide family, but the percentage of people who are going to walk away with that message is got to be a severe minority. Does the film do its job? I think you surprised by the subliminals of Alice. Um, okay, I think children watching it take away the journey that Alice goes through rather than the actual political statements like not the yeah. the leader is this whatever it's the journey that Alice goes on that I think the children take away so the mm. not being so being willing to take a risk but knowing when you've gone wrong knowing when it's time to go home knowing when you've said enough done enough that kind of thing knowing when to stop your temper knowing when to just walk away from something that's silly and that kind of thing I think is what probably what the children would take away from it more than the actual political views um but the attitude that alice has i think is one that probably replicated by children that know and love this film so yeah i think um my appeal of the film kind of lives and dies with its characters uh as far as who they are but never at what they do and i i <sighs> Uh, developing a character is great, but I need him to do something. And for me, it wasn't enough. And that's just me. So uh, just quick on the queen before we move on. Does she represent? Who does she represent? Is she a tutor? Is she all authority? Is she women? Is it, is it just based on the queen and the version of, of a queen versus a weak man? Or is it about women who are bossy and men who are weak because they're, they're, they're women? Because their spouses are so or partners are so so domineering is the message here that aggressive or powerful women are are wrong i believe it's commentary on the monarchy system at the time because even in today's uh, britain and today's commonwealth if we have a queen who is the queen we don't have a king if we have a king we also have a queen so there's a bit of a message there to the uh, how the monarchy system works and that kind of thing. No, because if Prince Charles becomes king, Camilla does not become queen. Yeah, but that isn't that because she's not his first wife. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the same reason why the queen mother is not queen either. No, but she was. She was known as queen. Yeah, but uh, that's true. Okay, and anyway, I think it's more than just marriage. I think there's something deeper than just. The, the the pronouns or a title you get to give people. This isn't about tight. This isn't about the title. It's about the fact of who these people are. Yes, no. But then there's the there's the argument of who is actually in charge. Why is there, um, why is there always a queen but not always a king? There's all sorts of different messages. Yeah, there. and much like with Queen Victoria, well, much like Queen Victoria, Queen Victoria didn't have a king. Queen Victoria had a prince. Exactly. Yeah. No. You know, if queen if the queen is the heir, yeah. there is never a king. He's always just known as Prince. I think it's because she's queen before they get married. I no, think. that is. I'm pretty no. sure that's how English anyway. monarchy works. I could be wrong, but that's how I've always believed it to be. That's my understanding as well, Georgia. Um, this film has more songs and more characters than any other Disney animated film. Really? Two characters. I'm not. The song surprised me. The, the characters didn't. I'd argue there's about 15 too many of them, but. 
No. Such as. Um, question for you, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Who's, who's the only character we saw in the film who's not in the books? Hang on, let me think. Not in the books. Not in the books. Oh, I can't think. You're going to have to tell me. It's the doorknob. Yes. It does not yes. appear in the books. I did. When um, when I was watching it, I was going, hang on, that's not... Because she doesn't actually go through the doorknob in the books. She gets back up to the table and then shrinks back down again. That was me thinking it was Alice. My, <laughs> my favorite part of the film myself is the dialogue, is some of the lines that get repeated back over and over and over again, which makes me go, maybe I'd prefer the story more than the film. Maybe the yeah. maybe seventy nine minutes isn't enough time to tell the story in a way that I find satisfying. Maybe that, that's quite possible. I was going to say to you, um, just like knowing how your how your like interpretation of story and that kind of thing goes, it probably this is one of those cases where it would be worth you reading the book because it is a lot longer than a seventy nine minute film is, um, and is definitely more fleshed out in a less cheesy children's kind of way. Georgia, is this just a more clever packaging of a package film? It feels like a package film. Lots of sort of spread out adventures that hold very little. Now, you're going to argue they're, they're all linked. I think it's a thin link. Well, no, I, I think it is just the way the story is. I don't think it has anything to do with package films because obviously this was written years before package films and films were even a thing um Mm -hmm. it is the way the book is written it is alice's journey and on her journey she meets different people who teach her different lessons um so it's always going to be a bit like that but from the production perspective where different directors were actually given different scenes and told this is your bit this is your bit this is your bit um is there a danger therefore it becomes a package film It's it's just a collection of scenes without one overarching vision so to speak I think the overarching vision is the journey that she goes on. And I like the fact that there's different directors for different scenes because it means that the character are, characters are fully different. They, you don't get one, you don't get the dodo and then get to the queen and go, but they just seem like the same character because they're, despite both representing authority, they're two very different characters because they're directed by different people in different ways. And I quite appreciate that. Okay. Uh, let's just go around. The t- you have something to tell me about uh, the about rules the of succession? The queens. Yeah. So firstly, Camilla will become queen, if, assuming that Charles becomes king. What? Um, and yeah. secondly, there's a difference between um, queen regent and queen consort. So queen regent, which is what Elizabeth II is, um, rarely ever has a king regent. And the only example in history... According, I mean, this isn't like an official source. It's someone commenting, but they sound pretty knowledgeable. Um, has been <laughs> get, um, <laughs> all your, get all your wisdom from the internet, kids. <laughs> it's very thorough. Um, get it from podcasts. Was, um, Philip II of Spain, because he was already a king in his own country, and he was married to Mary I. So they were both a king and a queen, and she was the, the queen regent, so the ruler of the... What, was it the United Kingdom? Yeah. Um, but then... If, so basically, if the queen is is the one that's in power, the heir to the, the throne, then she has a prince rather than a, a king regent because he would then become the ruler. But a queen consort is the wife of the king who's the ruler. Okay, I hope you all got that down because <laughs> I also don't get it. But I'm sure you can go on Quora basically or whatever what, it is and figure it out. Basically what Georgia said, plus Camilla will be queen. All right. You can edit out the rest of it if you want. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, Hashtag 
Georgia was right. I have no idea. I, okay. Um, I, I have a hard time believing it's just about marriage. I have a hard time believing it. I think there's a lot more to the character of the queen, who actually, we haven't talked to. Where does she rank? I mean, because she is the, I mean, is she, is she the villain of the film? She's portrayed as a villain, yeah. And um, so if villain? you go into the Disney, if you go into Disney villains, she's the one that comes up for this film. Yes. Um, she is quite a well-known villain, as it were. Like, she falls into the ranks of Maleficent and Ursula and Jafar and yeah. that kind of thing. But probably not really deservedly so. She only appears in the last 20 minutes. Um, although you can then argue the point that the, the cat tells us that all ways in Wonderland are the Queen's ways. Yeah. And so you can kind of argue that the way the people act are because of the Queen or something like that. So... Um, no, yeah, she's not particularly a great villain. I mean, but Just she's probably the most violent villain we have, isn't she? Ethan, let's play the name game, shall we? Yeah. So I'm going to name you two villains. You tell me which one's worse. All right? Okay. Worse as in, like, Is more like who's, who's, the, who's the better villain? Okay, who's the better oh, okay. villain? So okay. who's, and by better, I don't mean morally good. I mean, <laughs> who's the more iconic <laughs> the villain character. or who's truly mean, whatever oh, okay. it is you want to use. Okay. Uh, let's go with... Oh, what was the ginger kid's name in Frozen? Hans. Hans. Hans, Hans or, or, or the Red Queen, the, the Queen of Hearts? Oh, this is difficult, because I don't think Hans is a great villain. No, he I don't. Tries, I should have started with like, to, He just tries to create, like, um, he just tries to make, like, monarchical, uh, like, genocide. Um, so I don't think that's... Mm, I don't know. They're both like messed up in their head. I was I'm going really, Queen of Hearts. I was really aiming I'm for going, like a rapid fire game. <laughs> I'm going Queen of Hearts because she li- she does actual murder and like Henry okay. VIII's a load of people. Queen of Hearts. Wow. Okay. Uh, if we went like uh, oh, Cruella de Vil or the Queen of Hearts. Uh, Cruella de Vil has more of a presence and also she has a real cool song. So I'm going Cruella yeah. de Vil because if if the Queen of Hearts had like a nice little jazzy sort of bipping vibe while she like cut some people's heads off i think i'd rank her a bit higher and finally maybe for the whole table i mean ellie brought it up it's the one i was building to so she kind of uh, <laughs> uh what's the opposite of burying the lead she kind of just spoiled the lead but madame mim or the queen of hearts <laughs> i just re- who's i the better villain madame mim was for a second. who madame mim was okay uh, two two oh, villains I'm- who both come in on the last real 10 minutes of their film uh, I'm saying uh, Queen of Hearts because one, I forgot who Madame Mim was for a second, and again, she's a murderer. Okay. I think, yeah, I'd I'd agree, and not just because of my obvious bias, but I think Madame Mim is only really out against Merlin. Like that's all she cares about. Oh, really, she wants to kill him. She tries to eat wart. Okay, so she tries to eat wart, yeah. but like. I've not. Uh, you don't see her against anyone else, or her doing anything particularly bad to a massive group of people. She's just her angry against two people that, that walked into her house. Her whole character is that she practices black magic. Well, I, I did. I didn't pick that up from the film, so I guess. Okay. No, I mean you're that's not. More, a, that's more like, of a commentary uh, on uh, Sword in the Stone. No, I would think. Else. I mean, I would think the Queen of Hearts is a better villain, but it's not by much. I think the I'd same say, failings you have for one, you can have for the other. I'd say a little bit of black magic is like pretty like chill compared to having your own sort of like very specific almost military state where if you mess up you die. I prefer the idea of someone turning into a rhino every so often than to death for sneezing. 
Okay, let's go around the table. Uh, let's talk about some of our favorites. Uh, favorite character, really quickly around the table. Um, I really liked the door, or the doorknob. The doorknob, yeah. yes. Georgia. Um, Hatter, Mad Hatter is my favorite. All I right. love him. Ethan, I I love the arsonist Dodo. The arsonist Dodo. I'm really struggling. I thought I had one early on, and now I'm wishing I had my notes still in front of me. Um. It's not the Hatter. I guess I'm going to... He annoys me. Do I really want to go that side of it? <laughs> I guess I'm going to go with, he said, Starling. You said you liked the Cheshire Cat. A Cheshire Cat, I guess. That's the one I'm trying to talk myself out of, but I guess I guess it's him or the Walrus. Cuckoo Kachoo. I don't know. <laughs> Someone got that somewhere. Maybe Georgia got it. Um, yeah. Um, the problem is none of the characters around long enough to really resonate with you. I don't really yeah. like Alice that much, so I'm left with this. And the white rabbit's a bit kind of. See, I really kind of want. Is it the white he? rabbit because so like, he's because he's he's the constant? He represents I us. I don't really have a problem with the white rabbit, but he's yeah. not got an awful lot of character apart from kind of panicked and running late. So here's what I mean. Well, who is your least favorite character? We don't usually go down this road, but there's so many of them. What least favorite characters? No, so many characters. You can have, you can have <laughs> least favorite. Um, I think the caterpillar. Okay, Georgia, do you have one? Um, no, I don't like the over commercialization of the Cheshire Cat, but okay. that's nothing to do with the film. I like the Cheshire Cat in the film. I don't like the com- minions level commercialization of the Cheshire Cat. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Today's world, Ethan. Yeah. I don't like the Tweedle Boys. Oh, good they're shout. really they're really annoying, squeaky horn potato man, and I do not like them at all. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm gonna go back to the to the hookah smoking caterpillar. I just that was the part which I was just like, <laughs> why are you still talking about the same? Yes, you can put little cartoon R's and U's. I don't care. Get off my screen. Move on to the next bit of gibberish because we know it's coming. It can be nonsense. <laughs> nonsense. That's right. I'd argue with you about another political message there, but we've we've already got on too long yeah. about that. Anything <laughs> anything else that you love about it? Anything else? That, oh, sorry, favorite maybe favorite scene slash something that you loved about it? The walrus and the carpenter and well, the cute little oysters. Yeah, Georgia. Yeah. Uh, probably the unbirthday party. Okay, uh, Ethan. Uh, I'm saying golden afternoon one because no one said it, and I was going to say tea party, but golden afternoon's nice. I like the visuals of it. I like the puns. The song's okay until Alice starts singing. <laughs> just so, yeah, until like this, it, I like the scene, and then cut it right before Alice opens her mouth, and then you've got like a nice <laughs> little piece. Hun, there's a reason Wendy doesn't sing in Peter Pan, and it's because it's voiced by the same girl. <laughs> I'm gonna go myself with the scene where she's with the door, and she's having that conversation. Uh, this is where we get introduced to all the rules of the Alice world and how they're kind of nuts for the first time. And my issue wasn't that they weren't, because they were cool. It was just the fact that they kept coming back to it over and over and over again. So I really liked that, which let me then get into my little grumble, because I think mine goes kind of seamlessly into it. The thing I loved about the door scene is the thing I hate about the rest of the film, which is, oh, you're doing the same two or three things over and over and over again. You change the characters, but it's the same sort of message and the same sort of, and yeah, it's a lesson, but just as something for, I'm just sitting here going, I need something different. And Alice's reactions are all the blinking same as well. Yeah, she doesn't cry as much, but it's still, it's still, oh, dear. oh maybe I'll do, oh, at some point, 
give me some variety. I mean, it was Sword in the Stone without being clever enough or sim- I don't know, at least disguise it better. And they didn't. That's me. Um, let's go. Ellie, little grumble. Alice's failure to understand like how much of a bit of food to eat or drink like to make herself big or small and how she just forgets it it just really irritates me but okay. i mean there are there are a few different scenes that i just found a bit dull but that was that was kind of the niggle that got me going ethan um i'm torn between two things i'm torn between it being a dream but yeah. i really hate the, i really hate the oysters I don't. I think it might just be. I was not expecting oysters. I wasn't expecting a walrus to be like smoking a fat stubby and then eating children. I think it just it doesn't mess with the film at all. I don't like. Yeah. I don't like the Tweedle Boys. I hate their story. I hate their little moons and suns, and I don't like the song. It doesn't make sense to me. I felt like I was watching one of like the the Ichabod and Mister Toad fa- fun and fancy free yeah. short stories, and if you remove that. And I think it might just be, I really don't like the Tweedledum and Tweedledee, but that oyster scene confuses me. I don't like it. And just, it's so, it just, it's not the thing that made me go, okay, cool. This is where we're going with the film, but it just made me go, why? Why is this here? You can see, you can see with the constant shifts and the short scenes, why this would have been an ideal choice for American television, where you have to go to commercial break about every four to six minutes. It, it splits itself up. The, the the part that made it feel like a package film is also a thing that makes it perfect for for, for television. And so you can yeah. see that. But yeah, George, I left you to last because I'm. Do you have a grumble? It's going to sound stupidly pretentious and almost a little bit arrogant, but excellent. My grumble with Alice in Wonderland is that it isn't easily accessible to everyone. No, that's fine. Because it means so much to me. And has had a huge impact on me and my outlook. And I, like I said before, I feel like I belong within the universe of Alice in Wonderland. And for me, that's massive. And so the the fact that it isn't that for many people, because it is so polarizing, I think would be my grumble with it. I wish it was a story that was more accessible in, but still its own thing. And I don't think you can have both of those things. No, you can't. Because would it be no. like the band who you love and then they go mainstream and everybody loves them and you go, they lost the thing that made them them. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's probably what would happen. But nonetheless, yeah. I, I, I get what you're saying. The fact you have his favorite thing and yet so many people go either don't get it or don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Ratings time. Ratings. So I will now go through and reveal what we've done so far. So what we do here, folks, is we do a rating of where it places out of the... This is our 12th one, I think, I want to say uh, so far? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah 12th. 12th. So, so yeah. far, we have done Frozen, Mulan, Pocahontas, Lady and the Tramp, The Three Caballeros, The Sword and the Stone, Wreck-It Ralph, Treasure Planet, Aladdin, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and 101 Dalmatians. So there's where we're from. So out of this, this becomes the 12th film in that series. The where does yeah. Yes, the animated Disney classics. Where does this fall for you on our list of 12? And let's start with Ellie. Of course you start with me. Georgia, don't hate me. Um, oh, <laughs> I have ranked this film above three caballeros. Um, 
and below everything else. So um, <laughs> it's number 12 for me. Uh, no, number 11, 11 for me, sorry. Um, so it's directly below Sword in the Stone. Okay. Uh, Georgia, do you want to go ahead? Because I think yours might be quite interesting. I'm curious to see where it falls. Mine, it, it jumps to the top for me. Okay. I can't help it. Um, I'm aware of its flaws don't get me wrong um but because of what the story means to me i can't help but put it at the top no i, I would have a, i would have an issue with someone who went it's my favorite and blah and that was the reason but no you've engaged in a proper I, if we, you can disagree with the group and have your own reasons and that's totally cool and then yeah, we, then we no, hopefully no. if there's someone out there why don't you go ahead and actually send us uh, some information on the socials and let us know that you stand with georgia <laughs> That'd be a great hashtag. Hashtag I stand with Georgia. <laughs> I stand with Georgia and Alice. No, yes. um, I also if you want to reach out to me, um, my uh, the DMs are still open on the Instagram. I've not yet had any. I was trying to go with a different. Person. I was trying to go with a different <laughs> angle for this one. <laughs> the uh, podcast isn't actually up yet, so no one's heard my plea of dating. But uh, by the time this one is up, hopefully they will have, yes. and hopefully I'll be inundated with uh, messages and things. Okay, but if if you don't want to go on a date and you just want to chat about Alice, we are at Talking the Mickey on Instagram. We are at Talk the Mickey on Twitter, and I believe and we're now at Talking the Mickey on Facebook we as sure well. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Ethan. So we have an eleventh place vote and a first place vote. So quite disparate already, really. Where do you have this? I, I would, I, I have this at seven, um, and that is. I'm just getting my little uh, film thing up. That is uh, under Frozen and above Pocahontas. I, I put it at 7. You were Frozen at 10? Uh, no, Frozen. Oh, 6. Sorry, I'm sorry. I got this wrong. Okay, at 6. <laughs> so, sorry, it was below Frozen and above uh, Pocahontas. Wow, okay. Yeah, I, 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 found, I found Alice more engaging than Pocahontas, but I also, with both Alice and Pocahontas, I don't think I'll go back and rewatch it anytime soon. And even though I probably re- won't rewatch Frozen anytime soon either, I can still appreciate like sort of the story itself. Okay. Uh, I had this uh, at number eleven. I had it above Three Caballeros and below Lady and the Tramp, which was my number ten. Um, I actually gave it some thought about and for a while. I was flirting with the idea of putting it at, at number twelve. And I thought some because nothing in Three Caballeros made me. I mean, I was Three Caballeros. I was bored, but I didn't turn on it and go. This is I, I hate this moment. Um, at least not on a storytelling on a, on a representation level, sure, but not on on that. Um, Alice, I had that. I had those ones where I was like, I I really dislike this part. I hate this part. But there were also moments where I went, I really kind of dig what's going on there. And I also appreciate the um, the metaphorical stuff, which I did see the, for the first time. It just doesn't overcome the lack of what I felt to be a cohesive plot to get to number 10 and beat Lady and Tramp, which I wasn't that big on. So that's it for me. So we have an 11, a 1, a 7, and an 11. It's the biggest range yet. <laughs> it is the biggest um, range. It wasn't quick. We had, a, we had a top, we had a bottom, and we had very much a middle. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting as well that so we were, we were mentioning the comparison between this and the package films like Three Caballeros. So Georgia and Ethan are the ones that like Three Caballeros, and 
Ian, you and I are the ones that really didn't like Three Caballeros. So you've That's got a similar, 12 and 12, kind of, yes. similar kind I still of think my I still think my Three Caballeros bias, bias is solely because of the Epcot ride and the <laughs> Disney and the Disney Plus uh, <laughs> series that was on Portugal's Disney Life like two years ago. Oh, on that note, did you notice that the parrot from Three Caballeros was also one of the jurors in the jury? Oh, was he? He was holding one of the slates. Yes, he was. Wait, is that, uh, I want to say Panchito, but I... Is Panchito? I think Panchito is the one. Panchito is the parrot. Yeah, 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 Yeah. I think so. Because you got Donald Panchito, and I can't remember the other one. I always forget his name. He was only in the one film. Yeah, yeah, the cool one. Anyway, the cool, the cool one. I do. Sorry, Panchito. Panchito is the Mexican bird. I apologize. Oh, who's the one from Brazil? With a J. If you look up Brazil, three caballeros, it may come up. Just to as a bit of a comparison there you guys have got alice at 11 and three caballeros at 12 i've got alice at one and three caballeros at six so there's definitely a shift there within what sort of things we like in our films (laughs) would you believe it the the green parrot is called jose jose yeah jose panchito and panchito's the one we somehow remembered the duck duck formerly known as donald there's an episode of mickey mouse uh was no mickey mouse clubhouse no uh House of Mouse, where the the three caballeros come back, and then Donald pulls a prince. Excellent. So, um, <laughs> on that note, Ethan, thank you for that. Yep. Uh, you're actually, I shudder to think, you are bringing the next film to the table. I like the way that sounds. Film to the table. So, as one bringing the next film to the table, what are we watching for next week? Oh God, I I feel really bad uh, saying this one. Oh God. So. For context, for anyone listening, at Talking to Mickey, we have, like, an unspoken rule, which is we try not to get too close to, like, a film's release for the next film. So because of this, I had 60 years worth of Disney films to choose from, which is a lot for me. So I, I got, like, 10 and put them into a... We're only a, one. Yeah, I, put, I got 10. I put them into a randomizer and kept going until I had two left. Now, I need everyone to know... The film that came second and lost to this film was Beauty and the Beast. Oh, and I'm, oh I'm only saying this because we're going to see a big, a big drop in quality with this film. Right. I don't, I have no, I have no idea how to even like hint this. I, I put this as a joke option because I didn't think it would win. And my oh, luck Ethan. sucks, apparently. Hang on, hang on. So you, so you Donald Trumped this, yep. this like election. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No one's really going to vote for him. Let him run. <laughs> yeah. I put it in because my friend mentioned it. Like, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, I can't. I, it has Kaitha Sutherland in it, and it's Kiefer. It's Kiefer. Kiefer, not Kaitha. It's Kiefer. Kaitha Sutherland and Eddie Izzard in it, and also Jim Belushi. I don't. I everyone forgets this film exists. I forgot it exists. It's like um, it's in the Disney classics, but not. It is in the UK, but it's not in the US. It replaces Dinosaur here. Uh it's the only way I can describe it is it's like. Bad Madagascar. It's the 2006 disaster, The Wild. I have oh never heard of I this. I have no that. idea what this is. So it, is... It, it won't count as a classic on the list because it's not a classic on the list. But I'm going to double check that. Double check. I, remember... I don't think it is. It's not on the yeah. IMDb. It's not on the IMDb or the Wikipedia ones. But that's okay. Well, we can still review it. We can still review it. I mean, Tinkerbell's not on the classics list either, nope. but. Take, what do you know? <laughs> take a moment, think about it. If we got to do a different pitch, we got to do a different pitch. But 
Oh no, I think the wild will be very, very interesting. Okay, so so we're, so so we're so we're doing yeah. the wild for as sure. Long as okay, it's great. On Disney Plus, yeah. we're all good. It's on Disney Plus. Uh, yeah. Okay. This is it's um, it's that sort of weird period of time where Disney were also doing DreamWorks's type of films. So yeah. much like Bugs Life was Ants, this is Madagascar, but okay, really, really dodgy. <laughs> I can't wait. Oh, is the wild a Disney classic? It's. Ah, it is the 46th film in the series in Europe replacing Dinosaur. So for us, it is a classic, but for the US, it's not. Mm, Does that mean we don't have... Going off the US list so far, so we should probably stick to the US list. Does that mean we don't have to review Dinosaur? (laughs) No, we'll have to do that at some point. So, why not join us next time when we review... A terrible film. (laughs) Try that again. So, why not join us next time when we review The Wild? So, for talking to Mickey, I've been Ian. I've been Ellie. I've been Georgia. I've been Ethan, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> and um, this podcast, we hopefully tried to give you some, some good advice. It's a shame that we ourselves seldom listen to it. We'll see you next time.